and welcome to Biopod. Today, I'm very glad to invite three lovely PhD students from the Biological School of the University of Edinburgh. They have been studying the COVID-19 pandemic during the past few months. They are the genomic epidemiologist, Verity Hill. Hi. The molecular epidemiologist, Onya O'Toole. Hi, thanks for having us on. And the infectious disease modeler, Alex Morgan. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, thanks everyone. So um, first, um, let, we shall let our audience know more about you. Could you please briefly describe your PhD research topic? And so let's start it from Verity. So uh, I'll say thanks for having me on as well. <laughs> uh, so like, I used to work on pre-COVID, I used to work on Ebola virus in specifically Sierra Leone, but sometimes broader in um, Guinea and Liberia as well. So that's for the West African outbreak in 2014, which up until this point was the biggest genomic data set that we had. Uh, and I was using the genomes and the epidemiology kind of trying to combine them in new ways to explore different things about how the epidemic spread and what made it persist and all those sorts of questions. Um, yeah, so kind of before this, I was working on this, this big model called Absinthe, which simulated every person in Sierra Leone, which was uh, slightly overcomplicated, but um, very fun. So yeah, that was the main thing I was doing before COVID. Thank you, Verity. How about you, Alex? Um, yeah, so kind of pre-COVID, I was working on AMR, which is uh, antimicrobial resistance. Uh, and I was basically just using mathematical models to try and understand uh, kind of the transmission dynamics between livestock and humans in what we call this kind of One Health um, interface. So it's not just looking at AMR uh, from a human perspective, but also from an environmental um, and a livestock perspective. Um, and now um, I'm just doing mathematical models for just to understand kind of COVID's uh, transmission dynamics. That's cool. How about you, Anya? Yeah, so before this year, I was working on developing bioinformatic tools and pipelines um, for things like virus surveillance and outbreak investigation. Um, so one of the big ones that I had been working on was um, a pipeline for uh, polio surveillance. So when people are doing sequencing for polio virus, they can just run this really easy to use pipeline and then get an answer and a report out of it. Um, and then, yeah, so that sort of skill set that I've been trying to, that I've been getting slightly incrementally better at over the last few years, then came in really useful this year because that's really what we've been working on um, over the last few months and just using sort of skills that we had been, we had developed over the time, um, and, but applying it to COVID then. So is it that none of you have predicted this pandemic, obviously, then how did you change the topic and decided to work on the COVID-19 research? So let's start from Anya. Um, yeah, so so actually I, I traveled to Pakistan early this year to work with um, polio surveillance stuff. And sort of when I came back to Edinburgh after that, um, there was like a lot of talk of COVID and um, I remember one morning I came into the office and Andrew, um, who's uh, me and Verity's PI, um, had 
brought in this uh, cutting of an article from the paper saying that Scots on deadly bug alert and snake flu was like in the papers at the time. And so they didn't even like people knew at the time um, that it wasn't actually snake flu. But at the time, the papers were still sort of um, describing it as it, as if it was. And um, yeah, so um, sort of it became this bigger and bigger thing. And then like it went from you know, doing the odd analysis on COVID to, you know, Andrew came into the to the office one day and basically the whole lab just started working on it because um, COG UK was getting set up and it was basically just, yeah, all hands on deck was was needed. So oh, that, that, that's impressive. How about you, Alex? Um, so this kind of started like a really innocent question from my boss. Um, it was like doing the initial stages where we basically um, wanted to know more about the R number. So he kind of asked me, can you do like a search um, of all these kind of preprints to see what they kind of think the R number is? And kind of like Onio, like it just spirals kind of out of control, like, <laughs> you know, more and more modeling. And then we started doing stuff for SpyM. And then, yeah, um, I'm at a stage where I'm kind of doing less, but between March and June, it was, it was quite stressful, to say the least. Yeah, I understand that. How about you, Verity? You're in the same lab with Anya, right? I guess, yeah, your whole lab yeah. is working. Yeah, yes. pre pretty much, yeah. So like we, um, so I was um, just kind of in the lab and I, I kind of wanted to um, get involved. So I asked, I was like, can I, maybe build a tree like a phylogenetic tree put some sequences on it and Andrew was like yeah that sounds fine um and then it yeah kind of um ballooned as Anya said um so as COG UK was being set up so that is the um coronavirus sequencing consortium that's across the UK it's across lots and lots of different um universities it's across the four constituent public health agencies for the um, four nation states in the UK. Um, so here in Edinburgh, we're part of the analysis team of that. So as that was starting to get set up and sequences were starting to be funneled through to us from um, labs all over the country, uh, there was a lot of work to get started with to try and process the data. So that was kind of where uh, me and Anya got started with um, right. COVID things. You just mentioned about the COG UK. What is that? So it's this, it's this big consortium uh, across the UK, and it's got the four constituent nation state public health agencies. So that's like Public Health Wales, Public Health Scotland, all those ones. Um, it's led by Sharon Peacock, who is the old chief medical officer. And uh, we report directly to SAGE, which is the uh, scientific advisory committee to the government. Uh, our boss, Andrew, is actually on SAGE. And um, yeah, and it's across all the universities as well, lots of universities. So we get sequences from across the country uh, and they kind of get funneled through various pipelines, which is partly what we spent time developing uh, so that we get usable, actionable data out of genomic sequences for public health teams kind of as close to real time as we can get them. Yeah, COG has got like quite an interesting model because it's set up that there are all these local sequencing teams across the country 
Um, you know, so there's one down in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh that um, got set up quite early this year. Um, and a lot of them are set in hospitals. Um, the Sanger Institute is one of them as well. And they're doing the sequencing sort of locally, getting um, doing the sort of bioinformatic analysis um, locally as well. And then all of that information goes into a central server called CLIMB. And then that's where sort of all of the data gets gathered on a daily basis. And then like Verity was saying, um, so our lab, so a lot of sort of centralized QC happens then. And our lab has been responsible for the phylogenetics, which gets run on this sort of central data and then reports get generated and sent out to all of the individual labs. So, so there's sort of lots of, it, it's called COG UK because it is kind of like there's lots of COGS in this big machine. So it's, is that, is that open data? Yeah, yeah. It's all been put up online and the consensus sequences go up on GISAID um, as well, which is um, where sort of it, that, that existed previously to this pandemic. People um, used it for flu databases and I think RSV sequences could go up on GISAID as well. And then this year, um, like sequences from all across the world are going up on this central database. Um, and yeah, it's been incredible. There's, I think now, like over 300,000 genomes of coronavirus that have been sequenced since, you know, December last year, which is incredible, you know. Yeah. And to, and to put that into context, kind of the biggest data set we had before this of a sort of similar type, like during the epidemic, like sequence things, was the Ebola data set. And that had about 1,600 genomes in it. So we're like orders of magnitude beyond anything that existed before this year, um, which is remarkable. Cool. Uh, Sam got a question which I didn't catch. What is SPIM? Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, I should have. Um, I should have mentioned. Um, yeah, if I use any kind of acronyms, just stop me because um, there's about hundreds. Um, so SPIM is the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group and Modeling. Um, and kind of like Cog UK kind of feeds into SAGE. Um, and it's kind of comprised of um, different uh, modeling groups around the UK. So Edinburgh, um, London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, Imperial College London, um, Warwick. And they basically get requests from SAGE and different uh, modeling groups will go away, try and do their research, and then they'll feed it, excuse me, into, um, um, into SPIM, and then SPIM will then feed it back into SAGE which might go into um, Danny Tree. All right. <laughs> okay, Alex. So, I guess, um, as I have known you, all of you were on your third or fourth year when the COVID-19 kicked in, right? So would you like to tell me, how did it feel knowing that your work would have directly influenced the pandemic responses. Let's get started with Alex. Um, can you repeat the question? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's how did it feel knowing that your work could have directly influenced with the pandemic responses? Um, yeah, so it's it's nice to, to kind of feel like you're helping out almost in terms of your science. Um, but in terms of my research, um, it's I always thought it was good to kind of put into perspective. So my research is a really really small uh, cog in a massive massive machine. Like I'm 
not that bright. Um, people at London School of Hydrogen Chocolate Medicine, Warwick, Imperial College London are much kind of, um, they have much more complex models than me. Um, and kind of the group, the models we use at Edinburgh. So those kind of, that kind of research feeds into SPIM and SAGE and actually contributes um, quite significantly to SAGE. And we just have these kind of small models which help a tiny bit. Um, and they're kind of just good in general to, to have. And if you reflect on the fact that like, you know, you're helping a tiny bit of those small models um, in some small way, it kind of, it makes you feel good about your research, I think. That's cool. That, that's very exciting. That was, sorry, that was really like disjointed because I was trying to like get straps all down me. <laughs> How about you, Verity? Did you feel excited and first? Uh, yeah, so it was exciting because, like, I think um, this is kind of what I signed up for, and I think, like, the others might feel the same because, like, you know, we were all working on infectious disease to start with, and, like, it's partly, like, this has happened to PhD students in Andrew's lab before where they've started on one thing and then, like, the swine flu pandemic happened, so they had to change tack, or the Ebola epidemic happened and they had to change tack, so it's something that, that kind of does happen to PhD students sometimes. And it was, um, yeah, like it, it was exciting to start to feel like we could be like useful because <laughs> um, I don't know, like the, the model that I was working on before this was very, um, like I thought it was cool, but I've been working on it for a year. And a lot of that year had been spent like optimizing the code and it started to feel quite uh, esoteric and kind of further and further away from actually like providing a useful result that might help someone so it was it was kind of nice to get back into something where it was like no this this might actually help inform something <laughs> some decision that somebody makes somewhere else um yeah it's kind of scary as well because again because the model I was working on before um the stage I was at with it nobody else was really seeing it it was kind of like oh there's a huge error in the code oh well <laughs> it doesn't matter because it doesn't inform anything whereas with this it kind of uh does matter so it yeah it's kind of like it's scary as well <laughs> to have the confidence to be like this is what the result will be um but yeah yes. really you code that one time very that you did the code review in lab <laughs> it was uh yeah that was that was an interesting time <laughs> my code was I thought it was quite readable and it turned out it was not it sounded a bit like scat singing like the, <laughs> the variables it was it's really nice to see that others do really read your code isn't it I, I've I, I've written a lot of code I, I don't think anyone ha had ever read it before it's um yeah i think it's a good thing to do because <laughs> it helps yeah it helps people go like ah, oh, that actually isn't readable for anyone else and you're like i think it is and they're like it's not though <laughs> and that's, I, yeah. think, I think we all learn our lessons from the imperial college london kind of code where people are like ripping it apart oh, like, yeah. <laughs> and you have to get a team from microsoft i think just like go through and make it kind of readable like being a scientist does not equal being a good coder I find. Yeah. yeah. No, and I think actually that's been a, a huge thing this year that we've had as a learning curve that there's actually a huge amount of scrutiny on everything we're doing. Um, not only from 
people within, say, COG UK that are actually collaborators of ours, but all of the code we do, all of the pipelines are completely open source. So anybody around the world can go and do. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, sometimes it's really good, actually, like open science is amazing because, you know, I wrote this tool earlier this year called Pangolin and um, it had a lot of suggestions on it. It was the first piece of software that I packaged up for people to use like that. And um, it had a lot of really helpful suggestions. Um, so it's a lot of a, it's a much better, it was, it was a very stressful process, but it's a much better tool now because people made these suggestions um, and that. Um, just actually to answer your question about, um, uh, I think my answer is sort of similar to um, Alex and Verity's, but um, one thing that uh, I think me and Verity have talked about before was how obviously it's bad timing for the world because nobody <laughs> wanted this to happen. But like in terms of the fact that we were towards the end of our PhDs meant that we weren't first years who were just learning the basics you know we had spent a few years you know learning the basics so we were actually able to be useful and if this had happened say three years ago um you know we wouldn't we we would have tried but we wouldn't have been able to produce the things and i think maybe alex you feel the same because i know we're all sort of around the same point um that you know we have been able to learn from the phd program and actually be useful in a in a public health emergency like this one. So it's been really nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree. Um, like when we started this, um, I guess for you guys, it was kind of like, oh, I wish, you know, we had done a PhD a few years earlier and then we could have helped out with the Ebola kind of pandemic. And, you know, our wishes unfortunately came true, the COVID-19 pandemic. And now you're saying like my models and my kind of um, genomic experience can actually help and contribute um, so it's a, it's a nice feeling that you've had this kind of build up to this point in, you know, your life so far, we can actually help, but a pretty, you know, crappy situation to yeah. <laughs> apply those tools. Yeah. Cause like the, um, Ebola undergrad, the Ebola epidemic was ongoing throughout my whole undergrad. And that like part of the reason I wanted to get into this field is because like, I felt so like useless and unhelpful during that because obviously like I was an undergrad and I didn't know anything and I, I yeah couldn't wasn't in a position to be useful in any way so like I remember like reading the news reports and being like this is so terrible and there's nothing I can do so yeah kind of like you're saying like it's it's nice that this time around it's in a position that we can be helpful yeah I'm very jealous about that point because I studied botany and everything about that is useless. Yeah. I mean, not really. Like you look at sequences in botany and those sequences and the analysis contribute to the kind of pipelines and sequence analysis you do with viruses, I'm guessing, right? Um, yeah. So like I always like to think that every part of biology and every part of science is useful in some way. And you should never kind of like underestimate the impact of your field because it is genuinely important um it has applicability in every part of life i think especially wow. what we're doing like okay. there's there's plant models with um what's it called what was the rock i think <laughs> uh, there's like um lichen i don't think it's lichen but there's like a specific um plant virus that spreads quite quickly oh, the rock thing. i thought you said yeah. the rock 
thing. And I was trying to think of like a <laughs> modeling the spread of lichen on a rock. <laughs> actually, as well, isn't it? I don't know. But it's like looking at the models are used for that. Like it's so kind of unintuitive the way they do it. And if you try and think of it in terms of like modeling people, you never think that way unless they did it in botany. So don't underestimate your field hazel. It's really important. <laughs> You. All right. Um, so, have you had much public engagement experience before the COVID nineteen? Um, let's start. <laughs> let's start from Anya. Um, so, I took part in a science fair, the Midlothian Science Festival. That was something I think Alex also did because that was part of our program in our first year. We do that. Um, so, tick that box um in terms of like general public engagement not so much i have done um quite a lot of um capacity building as part of this so less so the public but more to do with sort of um skill transfers and i've so we've gone to ghana where we've um taught uh, genomics and sort of um little bits of uh, molecular epidemiology and phylogenetics and that sort of thing and it was the same in um, Pakistan. I've gone and like to the scientists there taught um, the sort of bioinformatics, phylogenetics, that sort of thing. So, so I've done less maybe public engagement um, and more um, sort of uh, specialized teaching to people who <laughs> um, have a general scientific understanding anyway. Um, but I recognize that public engagement has been really, really important during this pandemic. And there have been some people who've done really, really well um, and, you know, tried to maintain an air of uh, sanity amongst all the conspiracy theories that that exist. Have you done more public engagement events recently? Myself? Yeah. Um, I've been on the radio <laughs> talking about COVID. But, um, and yeah i haven't had a huge amount of spare time for um for uh, the public engagement stuff this year but there, i did one radio show um so that was that was again a box ticked i guess <laughs> it's, not very... it's another one right yeah <laughs> two boxes uh, how about you verity i i knew you i know you've done the q a sessions for the first year students and oh, yeah. that was really fun um yeah, I did. I did uh, the St Albans local radio station parents show, which was which was wow. fun. It was, uh, yeah, um, and uh, I chatted to a journalist um, a while back, and he used like a whole quote in his piece for me, which was honestly very exciting. Like <laughs> I was like very here for it. Um, yeah, but not not like a. Not like a huge amount this year. I keep meaning I have a blog, which I started in 2016. And I wrote a blog post in January being like, what's this weird pneumonia then? <laughs> um, and I keep meaning to write a new one on like um, some of like the mutations that we're tracking and like all of this kind of stuff. And every time I think I'm going to do it, I just kind of don't. <laughs> like I either do other work or I just like turn on the TV instead. So um, yeah, no, so not, not like... Um, not like a huge amount um, this year. That, that sounds a lot to me. <laughs> How about you, Alex? Um, I've only got one box ticked. I've done the Midlothian Science Festival, which is really good because you get to talk to kids 
And like, you never really understand that kids are so switched on until you start talking to them about science. Um, but in terms of COVID, not really. Like I'm more of a scientist behind the scenes. And then my boss is a very good public speaker. So he does most of the talking. Yeah, that's probably the main difference because like our boss doesn't really like doing like talking to press or anything like that. Um, whereas, yeah, obviously um, Alex's boss is like very good at all the press stuff and yeah. It sounds like it sounds like you've done a lot, but have you talked to your families, friends about your topics? Like, do they understand more about your research now, Alex? Um, not really. I don't think my mom really knows what I do still. Um, she still thinks I'm in a lab and perpetuating viruses, and with beakers of blue fluid, um, which I guess is my fault for not kind of talking to her more about my research. Um, I guess my dad and my sister, they understand it a bit more because I can talk to them about R numbers and kind of what they mean and what the applicability to kind of their situation is. Um, but yeah, I'd like to think that my family have benefited somewhat from me doing a PhD <laughs> in terms of my communication. And in terms of my friends, um, yeah, I, I can talk to them about science and I think they do appreciate the the type of work I'm doing, uh, just in terms of, again, like explaining our numbers and just kind of basic concepts, which I quite like explaining. Um, I'm not sure they do that, um, the way I explain it. <laughs> so how does it feel like to be the one who can turn to if they have questions about this pandemic? Priority? Yeah, it was kind of, I feel like it's decreased in frequency now, but there was a point like quite early on when it was like first really in the news um, that it was like, it got a bit exhausting. Cause also that was the time where like we were working a lot to try and get systems set up and running to deal with the data and stuff. So we were like working all the time, um, like in the office. And then like, when I'd have like a family call, they just want to talk about it the whole time. Um, so that was, yeah, and people, the main thing actually was people asking me stuff that I really like don't have the expertise to answer. I was like, I can talk about sequences, but like, I can't tell you about the model that Imperial just released, or like, I can't tell you about the clinical signs of this because like, I'm not a doctor. Like, so kind of things like that. Cause obviously, I think like once people know that you work in work with viruses, I think lots of people outside of science or outside of biology don't know that. There's so many different bits to working with viruses. So like they kind of like lump everything together. Um, but yeah, it was kind of nice. Like I know like my dad in particular, he like never understood what I did because I mean, like he stopped studying science in like 1965. So, you know, like quite a lot has happened since then. But now there's been so many articles like in the newspaper and, the, and like phylogenetic trees have been printed in the newspapers that he reads. So like he now, understands a lot more about what I do and that and that's really nice because he's like wanted to for a while but not knowing the right questions to ask one time he sat me down like like a few years ago and was like Verity one day I want to understand genes and I was like I cool okay <laughs> we can do that if you want um but yeah so like it has been nice that they understand more but um yeah so I mean at the start it was a bit uh, it was a lot <laughs> what is a gene is one of the most complicated questions to answer though so good luck 
Yeah, I did actually have to Google that when I first started here and Andrew walked in as I had on my like ultra wide screen, the Wikipedia page for Jean. And I was like, this is not, this is not a good impression. <laughs> well, I would never dare to answer that question. That's philosophical, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's like um, one of the final exam questions we had in our undergrad was like, write an essay. What is a gene? Yeah. <laughs> you Anya you talk to your friends family about your study and what's their perspective has it has that changed well to be honest like I'm the only scientist in my family so I've been the sort of debunking sounding board for a while um and I think yeah everybody's you know things from you know I remember one of my friends from home asking me she always she'd always come to me and say is this true and one of them was, if you leave a half an onion out in your kitchen, does that mean you don't have to clean it because the onion absorbs bacteria? And I said, no, that's not true. <laughs> so, so this is the level that, you know, we're sort of dealing with here. But um, yeah, I think so. It's not it's not new that I'm sort of like the, the naysayer and like debunking things all the time. But um, I think particularly this year, it's been, you know, the, the pandemic, I think, has had such a spotlight on it and such a huge amount of controversy surrounding almost every part of it um just because it's been such a you know in the public eye people have been able to follow it along as it's developed um you know people were burning down 5g towers you know like this is (laughs) sort of really really um crazy things but um yeah with my with my family in particular that's something that you know having so I obviously I, I only know a little bit about, you know, I know I know about genomics and I know about kind of about the genomic diversity that's been going around. So anything modeling or anything, I'm, maybe I'll give them Alex's number. But um, but um, but in terms of, you know, things like, you know, the ideas that get put in papers don't necessarily aren't necessarily based on fact or, you know, they may be misinterpreted. And, you know, I think actually a lot of the time it's my dad who says, things like I because he reads the paper in Ireland quite a lot and he'd be like so I read this and it turns out that the virus was in Italy in September and it's like well no (laughs) you know maybe that's what the paper said and you know you just have to sort of be a bit patient and explain that the paper may say it but here is all this other evidence that suggests that that's not the case and um yeah things like you know these sort of notions like I remember in Ireland there's been always like a thing that like oh we're not infected but you know it's all people who had communion children this year that are infected and you know based on the genomes that were sequenced I could say well that's not the case you know or we 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 have more information than that um so that's been so that's been kind of I guess good sometimes tiring um but it's nice that someone can can try and like debunk those things um yeah i just feel it's very comforting when when i observed that my parents started to doubt the what was said on the press and they will ask me about my opinion i think that's really comforting and seeing people they are updating their knowledge as well all right so um i'm wondering has the experience working on the pandemic topics changed your own opinion of scientific research itself so verity um like like how scientific research works or like how i find scientific research or either 
Okay. Um, well, it's definitely um, made me realize that I can help with public health while still being in academia. So it's made me like more likely to pursue an academic career because like it's it's because before I, I didn't know what the role of academia would be in a public health emergency or like how much it could actually help. But I think like this has shown that it, it really can, like there is a really important role for academia in public health. So um, in public health response kind of specifically. So um, yeah, I think it's it's made it a more attractive uh, like field for me. Um, I guess being more involved in the research makes me realize how much of it seems to be held together by hope, <laughs> not hope, that's not fair, but like, you know, it's, 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 um, uh, it's, it's all a little bit more, uh, rushed and mistakes are made than you might hope, but then obviously like people fix it and people are honest and rigorous and like all of these things. It's just when you realize that things are not, um, like, people that write papers and people that give advice are not infallible. Um, so it's like, but I think that's quite like a useful thing to know as well, because I think it's like not, um, like kind of obviously like <laughs> no one's infallible. So um, yeah, and just like the honesty with which people are like, oh, right, that wasn't quite right. So we need to fix that and we'll do that right now and it will be fine. And yeah, um, I'm not sure that was a very coherent answer, but <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so did you decide to stay in academia? I'm very interested about that. Um, no, I'm still not sure, but um, it is more, it's more appealing to me now. Before I was kind of like 50-50, um, and now I'm like, I feel like I might, at the end of my PhD, like start with applying for postdocs and see where it gets me as opposed to like, before I might have been a bit more unsure, but yeah. The possibility that we have an amazing future scientist is rising. How about you, Alex? Um, I think this whole experience has just showed me kind of how little I know, kind of, and how much more I'd want to kind of like learn. Like before, I'd kind of think, you know, I know an SIR model, that's enough. I can become a pandemic modeler, I can get a professor, or whatever. Um, and you look at some of the stuff other people are doing, you're just amazed at the amount of like knowledge they have, the the amount of expertise, and they kind of want to to learn from them almost. Um, and I think, um, like Verity said, you know, in terms of what I want to do after this, I'm not sure if I want to stay in academia um, or industry or even government. I'm not 100% sure. So. This whole kind of experience um, kind of gives me more ammunition to kind of figure out what I want to do. Because this is academia to its core, isn't it? Like, do research, contributing, um, collaborating with other people. Um, so, yeah, it'll, it'll kind of help me figure out what I want to do, which I'm not sure about, to be honest. <laughs> I think I want to run away to a desert island and go snorkeling and, like, <laughs> Yeah, Palau, right? <laughs> Palau. Palau have um, vacancies right now, actually. Um, yeah. In case anyone's interested, CDC yeah. are hiring in Palau to do research. Yeah. I think there was some Zika modeling in some Polynesian islands, so I might go as well. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Edinburgh winter is pretty grim. That's the. <laughs> 
just want to leave. <laughs> yeah. Let's all go to Malaysia and Alex will be the host. Yes, please. <laughs> um, yeah, it's humid and it's hot, but the food is amazing. So feel free. Looking <laughs> forward to that. How about you, Anya? Um, have your perspective changed regarding the scientific research? So I think, yeah, I think my experience of the research that has gone on in the pandemic was different to the research that was happening prior to this, because I think before before the sort of pandemic emergency thing happened, um, you know, we, yeah, we were, I was doing my PhD, like people in the field, you know, things could take time, you know, so it wasn't like this needs to be done immediately or this this needs, you know, this needs done like an hour ago and um you know there were t there was time to test things and like you know really this has been you know an uh, i suppose emergency research you know like it's it's been things that just need to be done and of course we're testing them but you know we maybe release them and then test them straight away and then like there's issue and like I, for me and verity we've been um developing tools that people are using so had it not been in the middle of a pandemic we would have probably waited until we had run all sorts of tests to make sure that, you know, we're biologists, we're not software developers, but apparently we are now. Um, and like, you know, this is, you know, it's a sort of thing that we've just, you know, put all of our code out there and, you know, it's a free for all. People can use it and we're like improving it as it goes along and the tools are getting more reliable. Um, you know, the science behind them is sound. Um, it's just simple things like, you know, if someone inputs the wrong directory that it you know prints out a reasonable error or so you know some stuff like that that's not actually biology and doesn't affect the result but it's you know software development which Verity's brother um, knows all about because he did computer science and he's um, constantly so sort of like in awe of the fact that anyone's letting us develop software as biologists but we try our best <laughs> yeah so it's it's been it's been a lot more rushed than um, than what I've seen before and um, RPI Andrew, who is genuinely the most relaxed person ever, he actually even got a little bit stressed during the pandemic. So that was that was a big, a big shift. Yeah, that was a new experience for us. <laughs> a, a side question, what's your opinion about the open data? Because this pandemic about sharing all the data sequence data is quite, quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah, well, what's your opinion about all the changes into like the prospect, the prospect of having all the data being open? What do you think about it? I think I think it's really important because and, and it's been so good. And I think actually the scientists um, at the very beginning who sequences the early genomes in China, when they released them, they set that precedent. So every country around the world that's been doing sequencing since then followed their lead and has put their data up online. And this has been a real push. And it's sort of it's sort of self-driven, but it's also community driven as well, because everyone's doing it and relying on each other. That when people don't do it, it actually now like it's the norm is to put it up online and make it available before you do before you publish your paper, before you do do anything. You know, it goes up so that other countries can benefit from it. And that is really, really important because, you know, say even the UK, for instance, we're doing a huge amount of sequencing um, as part of as part of COG UK. I think 
I think we've we've reached over a hundred thousand genomes from the UK alone, um, which is in, incredible. Um, it's kind of sad <laughs> because there's so many cases, but it's incredible that this amount of genomics has been able to happen. But without every other country also doing the sequencing, and we have uh, over a hundred countries are doing sequencing around the world, and that number keeps growing, um, and they're all putting the data up online. If we didn't have the other data, and the same with every other country, if if we weren't all working together, it would you know every country isn't an island, right? So you wouldn't be able to benefit and know you know where people movement is coming from, or you know things like um, are they on uh, sort of in the summer, um, there was um, sort of in the papers because of the genomics, we were able to know that um, a lot of the travel during the summer to Spain actually was responsible for imports to the UK. And it could have been exports from the UK to Spain and then back again. And we don't really know the full dynamics of it, but we know that that was a key factor in in the sort of second wave then taking off again because of genomics and be you know because we had sequences from Spain we had sequences from around Europe around the world we were able to compare them so so that's been really an an important thing and it's meant that because everyone's cooperating we're able to actually answer these broad questions about um what what are causing outbreaks to persist or to start again and and that sort of thing so yeah but this is a question for any of you who who want to answer do you feel more competitive than before about having the data being opened? So personally, no, because I'm, I'm developing tools that other people can use on their data. And I think Verity maybe feels similarly as well, because um, so I use the data to, to help train uh, machine learning models to assign lineages and like we use the data to build a big tree so that we can write reports and stuff. But actually sort of the, you know, I'm not going to take a set of sequences from the Netherlands and write a, do an analysis on the Netherlands. You know, I think sort of as a whole, there are some exceptions, of course, but um, as a whole, the system works by people not um, exploiting other people's generosity and holding back and doing research on their own data or or like like what we've been doing developing a tool that other people can use or something like that so because we're, we're personally not producing our own data there's data being produced at the hospital but we are um we are doing analysis and stuff to sort of help other people um so yeah, yeah. so i i can't speak for everybody that's sharing data but i think i think personally that i don't feel that it's a sort of i don't think that people are cheating the system um, in that case. And I, I think because, um, like Anya said, it's kind of like the, the the norm is now for this epidemic to share data. There's quite a lot of like within community policing happening. So when somebody, so that there was a thing um, a few weeks ago where somebody tweeted a, a preprint and they'd like very quickly analyze somebody else's data and the, um, the data producers were like, oh yeah, I mean, we're working on, that paper but but then kind of like within the community quite a lot of people were then calling out the authors of the preprint saying like hey that's really not acceptable did you you need to collaborate with the data producers this is not how we do things now and they they are I think they are collaborating with the data producers now so they shouldn't have done it in the first place but like 
there is a bit of like within the kind of scientific community people saying like we can't do this like the whole response is contingent on people being happy to share data so you can't yeah like not be good about it um and I, it's helped as well by um GISAID, this central sequence database um they have quite strict rules about like trying to help data producers um, and trying to keep people honest with using other people's data um, and that's one of the nice like pandemic preparedness things that system already existed um, as Anya said earlier for flu and RSV and stuff so that's one of those nice things where the pandemic preparedness thing has like really really helped because that already existed people data producers in different countries across the world already trusted it to like those agreements would protect their data but would still be usable for other analyses um so like yeah so systems like just say have helped a lot with this as well oh, cool well what's your opinion alex because i i know you you've kind of been pushed to publish a quick paper yeah um, yeah I, I wouldn't say pushed i mean modelers are kind of a bit of a weird bunch because there is a bit of rivalry between groups i think before covid um but i think in a similar vein to all of the sequence stuff i think it's actually really helps bringing the groups together and like do kind of really interesting um kind of collaborative research um so the people at warwick me work with the people at lshdm um and we've kind of helped to do some you know research as well and it's that all the preprints coming out it's just really amazing to see like all of these um groups just really come together and kind of policing their own preprints um not trying to like scoop each other or anything like that um but in terms of trying to get papers out there i think there still is an element of you know we want to get the nature paper kind of but less so than a year ago i'd say definitely so let's move on to talk about how did you work during this pandemic change? Because it's quite impressive how much you've done during the past month. As a PhD student myself, I, I have to confess, I had this low productivity and loss of interest and everything on mental health issues. So would you like to share your experience um, about what was it like researching while the university is closed and how did you maintain sanity or is it just opposite to me that you feel quite excited about having all this new data coming in so let's start from Anya yeah no I think I think like everybody else it's been a really tough year um I think um the fact that you know we couldn't travel like my my partner lives in Ireland my family are in Ireland um you know that's obviously been been really tough this year and um i think um we've had a lot of external pressure so usually i don't know if i think a lot of phd students maybe feel like they're very sort of self-motivated and until this year i felt like i was also very self-motivated um but when you genuinely have lots of external people needing things from you and cog is a big collect like there's i think there's quite like almost a couple of hundred scientists on it like um and they're using our tools and if they don't work they're messaging us and saying that you need to do this and yeah so we've had we've had lots of 
lots of external pressure to keep us motivated. Um, but it has been difficult. And I think um, for me, from like from early on, like from, from the beginning of lockdown, you know, the first the first like two or three months after that, um, you know, my, I was like, yeah, we were all working really, really hard and sort of like all hours, all weekends, like, yeah, it, it was really tough. I sort of felt very lucky that I was busy because my family, um, they uh, work for Aer Lingus, their cabin crew, and they were like in the absolute opposite end of the spectrum where they weren't flying because there were no flights anywhere. Um, so they were not working, whereas this was like 150% work. <laughs> but um, I think I think I was quite grateful that I was busy. Um, and then I think tried to maintain that level for as long as we possibly could. And I think Verdi's making faces because I think she agrees with me that we just sort of like after a while, like we're a bit broken <laughs> and we needed to to take um, some time. So we each took a week off and covered for each other on the week that we weren't working. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to Christmas. This is because <laughs> we're taking we are taking some time off for Christmas now. Um, and it. I completely understand that it's been difficult. I, for me, like I'm able to come to the office and it's social distance, but the fact that we can get up and go to work has been an amazing sort of, you know, gift this year because it's been, you know, a sense of normality in what's been an otherwise really difficult year for everybody. So yeah, sorry, I, I talked about that for ages. <laughs> but yes, that is my opinion of this year. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think Anya basically covered it. We have a lot of these conversations. <laughs> um, We've had every conversation imaginable. Um, <laughs> every single conversation, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think, yeah. And I, I think staying sane was probably a relative thing. I think there's been ups and downs um, across the time period. But yeah, I think... Um, being able to come into the office has definitely helped a lot and uh it was uh it was strange like when people started coming back into the department when they started like opening up again because you're like oh my god we have to wait for the coffee machine it was it was like a it was like quite a strange um thing but it's it's nice and like um it feels like good because i think there was like an element like a small element of guilt as well that like we were able to do this and um other people weren't so it's also kind of nice to see like other people being able to get this benefit as well. Obviously all in like a very, like everybody's keeping their distance, wearing masks and stuff. Um, but yeah. How about you, Alex? Um, I think, yeah, it's, um, we're in quite a fortunate position to be able to just do work during a pandemic. Um, even as PhD students and just be able to contribute as well and get paid, you know, and not be put on furlough. So I think we are genuinely like super privileged um, to be in our situation um, and I was kind of happy at the beginning that I was doing work um, and it was like all hours of the day every weekend uh, Alex we've got another sage request coming in we've got a spy request all right I'll get this weekend done and then next weekend exactly the same <laughs> um, but yeah I think I kind of definitely died down a bit um, so I'm really looking forward to Christmas just to take time off and spend time away from work, I think. Yeah, me too, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> the last question. Um, 
just talk briefly with all the experience in studying the virus, pandemic, infectious disease, what's the biggest lesson you will, you have learned that you would like to share with us? Just briefly. Um, Verity? Um, like personally or like policy-wise? We can be policy-wise if you have one. Well, policies, I guess the policy would just be like, act really quickly before you think it's necessary. <laughs> like, because by the time you wait for it to be necessary, it's too late. But uh, also, I guess we kind of knew that before this pandemic. Um, but yeah, I think I think personally, it's like keep keep talking, like keep talking to your friends. Because especially like this year, like people have had differences in experiences, but like a lot of the underlying stuff is the same. So I think like keep keeping on discussing how things are good and bad is kind of yeah that's probably the main thing but no, yeah how about you alex um yeah i think it's the whole experience has kind of showed me that it's, it's really important to take care of your mental health in terms of just talking to your mates telling people when you're down um really kind of just paying attention to yourself and understanding when yourself you can you can't push yourself any further um and in terms of the academic stuff um how kind of important it is to collaborate um modeling isn't this island which people take all of their advice from it comes from genomic epidemiology as well um some social sciences and then that together um kind of contributes to policy i think so it's this massive integrated response which i think is super important um and in the future and future pandemics um i really hope we learn from this experience and everybody gets together um and we can um respond a lot quicker than we did this time around uh, rather than kind of sometimes infighting within groups um so i think yeah that'd be my take-home message from 2020, apart from to buy more alcohol, because I ran out. Um. <laughs> How about you, Anya? So I think what's been very interesting about this year is that, um, you know, the things that we haven't been allowed to do have really emphasized what's really important to people and what, you know, is really important for people's mental health without us necessarily realizing it. It's been a big experiment in mental health, I think this year has been. Um, I think a, a PhD is always a really, really stressful time. A lot of people spend hours and hours working crazy hours, you know, working themselves to the bone in normal times. And, you know, we don't necessarily pay enough attention to our mental health during PhDs. And I think in the pandemic, you know, people, this has sort of been amplified because people have been isolated. People have been, you know, I think I've heard sort of anecdotes that when people are working from home, there's no stop time, you know, they don't leave. So they just keep working all hours. And it's really difficult because, you know, academia, yeah. So with academia, the, you know, the work doesn't stop. It's always going to be there. And, you know, that's been something we've had to come to terms with, especially with like, you know, when people are asking you for things and like depending on your supervisor, you could have, you know, external pressure coming in as well. 
like wanting results and it's really important to actually stop and say no this was enough <laughs> today and um i think you know even me i know that i'm definitely having going to take time off at the end of this year because i need to and um i think i think that's for me that's the important thing is to remember that and, and i think for phd students in general there should be more emphasis on mental health and more emphasis on knowing when to stop and knowing when to take a break um, and just to take care of ourselves better. So, yeah. Those are good information to our organizers as well and to our supervisors. I hope, yeah, hope so. Okay, thank you everyone for attending this session and really nice to have all your opinions. And so this is it, goodbye. Thank you for listening and see you next time.